Let's pray together again as we prepare to hear God's word read and preach. Father, we thank you uh, that you are the God who has not left us in darkness, but you have spoken and you have shined um, through your word and through ultimately Christ. And we pray that as we hear your word read tonight and that we hear it preached, um, that you would give us eyes to see the light of the world and ears to hear um, what he has to say to us and the redemption that is found in him. And we pray that you would uh, powerfully work through Liam as he preaches and uh, help us to be attentive listeners um, to you as you speak through your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. The passage we're looking at tonight is is John 8. 12 through 30, and you can find it in the books in your pew, Bibles in your pew, in, on page 894, starting at verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, and I am from above. You are of this world, and I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So Jesus said to them, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is God's word. Back in college, when we were studying English literature, we were reading some of the plays that were being produced at that time uh, in history when I was there, which was a kind of crucial time in the development of thought in the Western world. It was the 60s. Uh, We had just invented rock music. 
That was our great cultural contribution. I say we, uh, because I was part of the generation that did that. Uh, but also we were producing all kinds of literature that was, frankly, somewhat nihilistic and depressing. And uh, one of those bits of literature that we had to study, and then we went to see the play. The only good thing about doing that was we got out of class for an afternoon with, with our teacher, our lecturer, uh, to, to see the play was Samuel Beckett's famous play, Waiting for Godot. Have you read the book, read the play, or seen the play? If you've seen the play, you may not yet have woken up from it. Basically, basically there are two tramps, <clears throat> and they're just hanging out, and nothing is happening, really. Nothing is happening in their life. Nothing is happening in their experience. They're just hanging out, and they are utterly bored. They're completely bored. They're waiting for Godot. They have absolutely no idea who Godot is or what Godot is. But they're waiting for Godot to turn up. And there they are. It's boring reading it. It's even more boring if you're actually at a, a play when they're performing it. You, you are watching these two people thoroughly bored, trying to put in the time. It's not going anywhere. There is no movement in any direction. It's like some sermons you've listened to. <laughs> and you, there you are, you're sitting waiting for the action to take place, and it never takes place until eventually, at the end of the play, one of them looks at the other and says, Well, shall we go? And the other says, yes, let's go. And the stage direction at that point, the stage direction in the play says, they do not move. You go to see the performance, they say, let's go. Sure, let's go. And they just stand there, hanging out, waiting for God, who never comes. Now, in the cultural moment in which that play was written, everything was up in the air. Old certainties were being blown apart. Vietnam was raging. People were up in arms. Communism seemed to be growing in dominance. The threat of nuclear war was on the horizon. Religion was on the decline. Christianity in particular was on the wane. It seemed as if there was no tomorrow. The history was not going anywhere except perhaps to some massive explosion and annihilation for the planet. It was depressing. It was darkness. There was a bleakness and a blankness in people's lives. It came through in some of the heavy rock of the period, if not in the light uh, pop material, but in the heavy rock of the period, it was all nihilistic, empty, baseless, meaningless, directionless, and pointless. That was the perspective on life. Now, I don't think we're there today because I don't think actually we think as deeply today as some people were thinking in those days. We've accepted the trivial as normal. 
But those of us who stop for a moment and who consider where our lives are going ask the question, is there not something else to life? Is there not some meaning to life? Are we just here hanging around, amusing ourselves to death? And is there no way out of the darkness? It's into that context then that I want you to hear the words of Jesus this evening. As he announces to people, I am the light of the world. Now, if you have your Bibles open, I want you to notice that he is giving testimony about himself. And he's, uh, that phrase, that word is used in verse 13 when his, his opponents come to him and they say, you are boasting, you're bearing witness rather about yourself, and your testimony is not true. That word testimony is the Greek word marturia, which gives us our English word martyr, because a martyr witness is somebody whose testimony leads to their death. And Jesus' testimony would lead to his death, to his crucifixion, ultimately. And this section really then is all built around the use of that word testimony. We find Jesus giving his testimony, defending his testimony, and then clarifying his testimony. We find him giving his testimony. And again, he gives it against a background. And the background, to find the background, you have to skip the preceding paragraph and go to chapter 7 uh, and the passage that ends in verse 52. Because it's set against the background of one of the great festivals of Judaism, the Feast of Tabernacles. A number of things happened at the Feast of Tabernacles that we've spent time looking at in our studies of John. For example, one of the things that happened was the ceremonial pouring out of water in the temple, in the temple precincts. And Jesus picks up on that language, which is uh, taken from the Old Testament, where God provides water for his people when they're on a journey in the desert. And he applies it to himself, and he says that he is the living water. He's come to give people satisfying living water in the midst of their lives. But something else occurred during that Feast of Tabernacles. There was the great illumination of the court of the women. The court of women was the most open uh, area on the Temple Mount. You could see it actually from a great distance. If you were coming, for example, from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, from a great distance you could see the flat area of the court of the women. And in that court there were four great big candelabras, oil-filled candelabras that were lit by the priests during the Feast of Tabernacles. Not only that, thousands of candles were laid on the floor of the court of women, and they were lit in the evening. Coming from Bethlehem towards Jerusalem at that time, you would see the sky illuminated by the light emanating from the temple compound in the mount, in Mount Zion at the very heart of Jerusalem. That illumination was part of this Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, by the stage we read these words, the Feast of Tabernacles was over. The last great day of the feast has come and gone. Jesus is still around in the temple area, but the feast is gone. And at night, his parents used to bring their kids out onto the 
the flat roof of their homes to look at the sky illuminated by the lights up in the Temple Mount. Now there was nothing to see. All was darkness. No street lights, far less the great brilliance of the Temple illumination. All is in darkness. And it's against that very physical darkness that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now I want for a moment just to tease out the context, the background to his expression, the use of this idea of light and darkness. In the first place, these, this image of light and darkness has been in John's gospel tied together, with, ties together a whole series of thoughts that have been emerging right from the beginning of the gospel. So, for example, back in chapter 1 of John's Gospel, we find uh, the place of this mysterious being who eventually we discover is a reference to Jesus in his pre-incarnate, that in, in his life before he became human. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in God, with God in the beginning. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not put it out, has not overcome it. There is the light at creation. Later on in chapter 1 verse 5, we find that there are people who are characterized by darkness and so therefore this light becomes a moral light that shines against the darkness of an immoral world. Uh, we have the image of light at the Feast of the Tabernacles just after this incident that we're reading about in chapter 8. In chapter 9, there is the healing of a man born blind, and that is used by Jesus as a parable of the spiritual blindness of the leaders, the, Christ the leaders of, of the, the, the Jews at that period, the Pharisees. In chapter 12, he distinguishes between spiritual life and spiritual death. And in that contrast, he uses the images of light and darkness. So at the most basic level then, Jesus is responding to the human condition. The human condition that you find there in chapter 1 in particular. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Or in verse in verse uh, 6 of, of chapter 1, the true light that enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world knew him not. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The darkness is confronted by the light of the arrival of the one who is the light of the world. Now, we can use this idea of light and darkness and apply it to the difference between before Jesus came and after Jesus came, in, even in relation to the Bible or, or the revelation of God, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Tabernacles Feast represented the Old Covenant. It was part of the old setup under Judaism. Now the candles have gone out. Jesus stands up and he says, I am the light of the world. You don't need the candles anymore or the great candelabras anymore. What they pointed to, what they spoke about, what they symbolized has arrived in person. I am the light of the world. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth come by Jesus Christ. It wasn't that there was no light in Moses. There was. 
It was true light. It pointed forward to the coming of the Messiah. But now Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. You don't have to, you, you don't have, to have an artificial light anymore. The real light has come into the world to make sense of everything. And if you put your trust in me, you will never need to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles again because it has come to an end. Indeed, the temple is going to come to an end. It will be torn down. The veil of the temple will be torn in two. All that it symbolizes will have found its complete fulfillment in me. I am the light of the world. That's one aspect. On the other hand, another aspect is the fact that the human heart is a in a condition of spiritual darkness. Unable to see. Unable to see clearly, that is. The fullness of what God wants us to grasp. So back in chapter 3 of John's Gospel, Jesus encounters a religious leader, Nicodemus, who comes to him. And Jesus says to this religious man, unless you come into the kingdom, you cannot understand. I tell you, you can't understand it. You can't grasp it. You can't see it. The man says, I don't understand it. Jesus says to him, unless a man is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's darkness to him. So we find this, the spiritual condition of people all around us. People are in darkness. You try to explain the things of God, they can't see them. You say, why can't they see them? It's because they're in darkness. Their eyes have been blinded to truth and reality and to them we say Jesus is the light of the world. But also these images of light and darkness have also a rich history in the revelation of God in Scripture because God in the Bible is said to be light. God Himself calls Himself light. He dwells in light that is inapproachable. There's a brilliance. Whenever God appears to people in the Old Testament, there is this brilliance that means that people have to cover their eyes, as it were. Moses has to put a covering over his face in case the brightness of God's splendor and glory blinds him. Not only is God Himself light, but God's Word, His law, is light as well. It's light to our path. It's a guide to our way. Whenever you talk about God and light in the Old Testament, it's God in action. Whether God is revealing something to people who can't see it, showing them something, you know, putting a spotlight on the way that a person should go or on a, an idea that a person should grasp or a truth that a person should see, God putting the spotlight on, revealing Himself. Or God saving people. God saves and rescues people. Light is associated with salvation and with revelation. And the same imagery is used of the expectation of an end-time servant of the Lord, that is, the Messiah. For example, in Isaiah 49, God says this, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you, that is the servant, as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of of the earth. Here's God putting it in writing through Isaiah. And He's telling us that the servant who's coming, that is the Messiah, when He comes, will be a light 
for the world, not just for Israel, but for the world. He will be a light for Israel. He will bring people from Jacob, that is Israel, into a relationship with God. But he's coming also for the nations outside of Israel. And in the very end of history, as the Bible describes it, light is a characteristic of the presence of God among his people at the end of history. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Isaiah 60. And in that new Jerusalem, the sun shall not, uh, no more light give you light by day, for the, nor will the brightness of the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory, and your sun will no longer go down for your moon, uh, or nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. So the whole idea is God, when He brings light into your life and experience, at the end of all things, will be sufficient for you. You will live in light. There will be no dark corners, nowhere to hide, nothing to hide. Because all will be light. All will be, be glorious and there will be no darkness with all the fears that darkness breeds. And then I think the third thing is to say that there are particulars that relate to the Feast of Tabernacles itself. I've mentioned already the, the illumination of the court of the women during the tabernacle period, during the Feast of Tabernacles period. It, tradition, Jewish tradition says that there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that was not illuminated by the place where the lights were. And that was meant to remind Israel that when they were wandering, when they were, when they were just pilgrims going through the wilderness and their journey from Egypt to the Promised Land for 40 years, wandering round in the desert, that they were not alone, that God was with them. And every night when they pitched their camp, there was this great pillar of fire that illuminated their camp that chased away the jackals and the other beasts of prey that would have come to attack them and that protected them. And they camped around it as a, a sign that, they, that the Lord was in the midst of them. Zechariah, he ties up these two ideas that we've mentioned from the Feast of Tabernacles, the idea of the living water that Jesus has already used in chapter 7 of John, and now the idea of light that he now uses in chapter 8 of John, Zechariah puts it like this. Looking forward into his future, that has now come for us. Then the Lord my God will come, and all his holy ones with him. And on that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. There shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening there shall be light. And on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Looking beyond our day to the last day. Looking from what has already happened here at the Feast of Tabernacles where Jesus speaks, offering living water and light to men and women. To that last day when there will be living water and light, what they represent, satisfaction, provision, God's abundance for his own people. Now, Jesus is talking to religious leaders here. He's drawing from those images. And he is responding to what they have to say. And he's saying that he is the light of the world. The big, bad world 
The world that is in opposition to God. The world that is a spiritual realm. It's not just a, a, a neutral venue. The world around us that we call the culture or society that's ruled by the ruler of this age who is the devil. The people in that culture whose eyes have been blinded by the God of this age, the devil. And he says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Following. The idea of Israel following that great pillar of fire through the desert. Following. To follow that meant you had the presence of God with you all the time. To follow Jesus means you have the presence of God with you all the time. To follow Jesus is to trust in Jesus. To follow Jesus is to have Jesus as your own. It is to have the presence of God with you wherever you are. Following Jesus is to have the light of life. That is the light that gives life, gives eternal life, life that never ends. So there's Jesus, and he's giving his testimony to himself. I am the light of the world. Actually, I am, I am the light of the world. Ego I me is the Greek. I am, I am the light of the world. And then secondly, we find Jesus defending his testimony. Because the coming of the light is not immediately a joy to everyone. And uh, <clears throat> the ruler of this age darkens people's minds. <clears throat> Jesus talks about people walking in darkness, verse 12. Walking in darkness. Now you have an illustration of what it means to walk in darkness. The Pharisees. <clears throat> These are religious people, by the way. They're even Bible-believing people. But they're walking in darkness. They're an illustration for us. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. That is, they're reacting to the absoluteness of Jesus' claims. It's not so much that Jesus is, that they're, that they're questioning that Jesus could bring comfort and happiness to people. But they are questioning the fact that he is saying that he is the comfort and happiness. He is the light of the world. And they are challenging that. And they're putting Jesus on the defensive. And so he argues for his own validity. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from, and where I'm going. Jesus is speaking on his own behalf. Now, interesting, here he does not appeal to any other witnesses. Earlier on in chapter 5 of uh, this gospel, and in an earlier conversation with the authorities, he had called two witnesses to his defense. He had called to his defense the Father's words. That is what God the Father had said in the Scriptures. And then he calls to their attention not only what the Scripture says about him, but he calls to their attention the works that he'd been doing, which are the Father's works. He'd been feeding the 5,000. He'd been raising the dead. He'd been doing all kinds of things that only God can do. And so he points to those things that he's been doing. He points to what God had said in Scripture. In fact, 
Even the crowds who were there when he was baptized had heard a voice from the excellent glory speaking. They'd actually heard a physical voice speaking about Jesus to Jesus. And he calls on those two witnesses to his statement. But here, here he argues on the basis of his own testimony. He says, you need to listen to my testimony. You've heard the testimony of the Father in His Word. <clears throat> You've heard the testimony of the Father in these miracles that I perform. Now listen to what I have to say about myself. My testimony is true. I am the light of the world. And I'm qualified to give you that testimony because I know where I came from. And I know where I'm going. But you don't know where I came from or where I'm going. You're not really qualified, actually, to enter into this debate, he's saying to them. Because you don't know where I came from. You don't know where I'm going. I'm speaking from first-hand knowledge. You have no idea what I'm speaking about. You cannot comprehend what I'm speaking about. I know my own origin and my own destiny because I'm here to do the work of God in the world, the work of salvation. I'm sure of myself because I know where I came from and where I'm going to. And I'm speaking to you as the one who knows what heaven is like firsthand and who knows the way that I must take via the cross to a returning to heaven, returning to my Father in the end. I know the way that I take. He argues for his own Validity by saying that he has something to say for himself. Having the word of the Father behind him, having the works of the Father behind him, now he is speaking on his own behalf. And he's saying, I speak as one who knows firsthand where I've come from, and I know where I'm going. You're not in a position to argue with that because you don't know where I've come from. If only you knew where I'd come from, you would know I was qualified to speak on my own behalf. And he goes on to question, in verses 15 and 16, their credentials. He distinguishes between their perspective, their very human perspective, and the divine perspective. He says to them, he had already said to them in chapter 7, 24, that they were judging by appearances. But here he goes further and he says that they are seeing th things through the lens of the flesh. He uses that word quite deliberately. He's not talking about the body, although a body is made of flesh. He's thinking when he uses this word flesh of fallen humanity, that is humanity out of sorts with God. And he, said, he is saying that their mind is compelled, driven, informed by the fact that they are fallen human beings. They cannot see beyond the flesh. Earlier he'd said all they did was look by, uh, judge people by mere appearances. Now he's going further and saying that they, they cannot see beyond what is in front of them. That is Jesus. Even though they have the scriptures pointing to him, even though they've seen the kind of works and miracles he performs, even so, even so they know the kind of man he is. They cannot see who He really is. They cannot, they cannot accept that He is the Word made flesh. They see Him 
doing what only God could do, but they can't bring themselves to think, maybe God is with him. At least Nicodemus got that far. And they certainly can't think that this is God doing the stuff. They are superficial in the way they see him. Not only are they superficial, but they are downright suppressing the truth. They are doing what the Apostle Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 6 as looking at Jesus from a worldly point of view. And he goes on to say in verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. That is, you don't have spiritual life in you. You don't have the light of life in you. That's why you need me. I am the light of the world. Those who walk in darkness can have light, the light of life. This is what it means to walk in darkness. To walk in darkness means you don't see who Jesus is. To walk in darkness means you don't appreciate His divine origin. To walk in darkness means you don't understand what His destiny is. To walk in darkness means that you need to be born of the flesh. That you need to be born of the Spirit to be, because you've just been born of the flesh. And whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. And that only that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You need the light of life. You need life. But your only flesh, your spirit, is dead. And he contrasts that. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one that way. That way is supplied. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. He's saying, you know, I can't look at it the way you look at things. This is not the time that I'm going to judge anyway. At this point in history, I'm not ready to judge. But if I was, and when I am, ready to judge the world, you need to know that I've been given all authority to judge by the Father. He's already told them that in chapter 5. He has already authority to judge. And His judgment, is what He's saying here, will be based on how you respond to me. How you deal with me. Because I and the Father who sent me work together so closely. You cannot tell who's who when we're working together. Now this whole idea of being sent, that had a history as well. They'd be thinking, goodness sake, we thought Israel was the one that was sent to the nations. And here's Jesus saying, he's sent to the nations. What's he telling them? He's saying that from now on, he's, they, they need to understand he is, he is the true and faithful Israel. He's taking the place of Israel. From now on, if you want to be in Israel, you have to align yourself with Israel's Messiah. No longer with the law of Moses, but with Israel's Messiah. From now on, the test of whether or not you are a member of the Israel of God will be determined by your relationship and your response to Jesus, who is the true Israel. And he says everything that he says and does, he does in active and intimate fellowship with his Father. I'm the one who bears witness about myself. and My Father who sent me bears witness about me. <clears throat> now at this point, we move to the third step which is Jesus clarifying his testimony because they're listening to him and it's quite obvious. This is what it means to walk in darkness because they said to him, where is your father? 
They thought he was talking about Joseph. They thought he was talking about an earthly father. They didn't get all this other stuff that's there. They, they, they should have seen it. They were theologians, for goodness sake. And when they asked where his father was, I think it was more than them being just naive. I think they're saying this to him. Okay, then. You say your father understands you. You say your heavenly father understands you. Produce the evidence. Call him into the court. Tell him to come and give testimony right now to who you are. They're asking Jesus, demanding, in fact, Jesus, prove his legitimacy. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father, because if you knew me, you would know my father also. You see what he's saying to these people? I want you to get this this evening very clearly. If you want to know God, you need to know Jesus. There is in God nothing that is not Jesus-like. God has revealed himself so in Jesus Christ <clears throat> that you cannot know God unless you see him through the prism of Jesus Christ. You cannot know God unless you have a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. Because in God, there is no unchristlikeness at all. God is Christ-like. That is the amazing revelation that we find Jesus making here and that, John, that Paul, for example, picks up on in Philippians when he's telling us that the Jesus who came into the world and humbled himself and so on is the one in whom all the fullness of God dwells. In God there is no unchristlikeness at all. Jesus is God, and God is in Christ. And to know him, if you knew me, he says, you would know my Father as well. And he's saying to them, I and the Father are so united that if you only knew and loved either of us, you would know and love the other. You can't love God and not love Jesus. You can't love Jesus and not love God. You can't know God and not know Jesus. You can't know Jesus and not know God. These were explosive claims that Jesus is making to these people. And as he unpacks this, as he goes further down these passages, he goes on to explain that his hour has come, that the time would come when uh, he would not be in the world. He says, you are, you are of this world. I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, the word he there is supplied by the translator. It's not in the original. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. I read, didn't I, from Isaiah 43, verse 10, at the very beginning of our service. And Jesus is quoting from that verse here. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen. Jesus is the servant. 
that you may know and believe me and understand that I am, that I am. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sin. And I am is the great name for God. It's a great divine name throughout the Old Testament. Jesus is taking that name in his lips. It's no accident that he has said at the beginning in his statement, in his claim, I am. I, I am, lego aimi, I am. He is claiming to be God. And he's saying, if you don't recognize that I am, you will die in your sins. So here's the thing about sins. Either Jesus died for your sins or you will die in your sins. And you're in one of two, those two categories this evening. When Jesus died for my sins, this is what it meant. It meant all of the punishment, all of the penalty all of the separation from God, all of the wrath of God, all of the divine justice in the universe that had to be carried out has been already carried out in Him. In Him. For me to die in my sins, it means that I have to stand before God with, no, with, with absolutely no plea, no means of defense, and I have to take the full weight of the punishment that's coming without any relief. And that means to be pushed away from the presence of God and to spend eternity in hell. So here's what Jesus is clarifying for us. He's saying to us, the key thing this evening is this. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness and not end up in darkness, but will have the light of life. And to all those who are waiting for something to happen, waiting for meaning to take place, waiting for light to shine in the darkness of a world that seems to be racing towards its own little Armageddon, Jesus says to you, I am the light of the world. Follow me, and you will have the light of life. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we come to the table this evening, that in the action of taking and eating, taking and drinking, we might take of Christ, who is the living bread, uh, take of him who, whose blood separated from his body on the cross by violent death and sacrifice, now cleanses us from all sin. We thank you that Jesus took our sins in his own body on the cross and suffered the righteous one for the unrighteous ones to bring us to God. We pray, Lord, that no one in this room would die in their sins, but would believe that he is 
in Jesus' words, that I am. In his strong name we pray. Amen.